From, did, from today's passage, we have the opportunity to be encouraged by someone else's journey. We get to see all the twists and turns and his ups and downs, that is, the ups and downs of David, the Old Testament figure who would become the greatest king of God's Old Testament people. We see how all of the trials work in, work in such a way to strengthen his faith in his steadfast Lord. Please join me in turning to 1 Samuel and we are in chapter 26, 1 Samuel chapter 26. And uh, once again, we continue to walk through the book of 1 Samuel, which record the events of how God's people go from living underneath God as king to then living underneath earthly kings. Now, God was to be their king. He had made them. He had caused them to flourish as a people. He himself had called them. He had gathered them together. Think of the Exodus. He had given them his righteous and loving law, but God's people rejected him. And so instead of God's people being the light to the nations, just as God had designed them to be, instead they were in many ways like the other nations. This is seen in their sin in general, but also in their desire to have an earthly king fight their battles for them, right? To carry a sword, just like all the other nations, and to enter into battle just like all the other nations. And so they they go on and choose a man named Saul. He's their first king. He turns out to be a horrible king, but in God's loving kindness, he prepares a man named David. He's our main character today. He prepares, prepares a man named David to be their next king. He is a man after God's own heart, still a sinner, but nevertheless, a man after God's own heart. In our passage today, Saul is still king. And he is incredibly hard-hearted and unteachable. But David, on the other hand, we see that he is a teachable man, learning what God wants him to learn. And though his faith is stretched, it ends up being strengthened in the Lord. He is a great example for us today. A great example for you, Christian, today of what it looks like for for you, for example, for any of God's people to face a serious temptation and even to give in to sin, but then have his faith refined, once again, all by God's grace. And we see him today eventually choose God and his righteous ways. We all know what this is like, to be faced with temptation, to even give in a little bit or even to give in a lot, but by God's grace be ministered to by his word and his spirit and then finally be in a place to choose God and His righteous ways. This brings us to our first point. Point number one, faith refined. Faith refined, learning to trust in God, not man. So if you're taking notes, we got the main idea today. We have right faith that is strengthened in the steadfast Lord, right? That's the big idea. Here's point number one, faith refined, learning to trust in God, not man. In the last many chapters, right? So today we look at 26. In the last many chapters, really since chapter 21, David has been on the run from Saul, who has tried on multiple occasions to kill him. Saul cannot stand God's determination that Saul is not fit to be king and that the kingdom is going to be torn from him and then given to someone else. And God's will, frankly, drives Saul nuts. And he stops at nothing to keep keep the kingdom that he has no right to. Two times in chapters 18 and 19, Saul attempts to murder David by hurling this spear straight at his head. Not only that, though, but when he finds out that Jonathan, 
right? When Saul finds out that his very own son, Jonathan, has been helping David, Saul tries to kill Jonathan in the same way, hurling a spear right at his head across the room. So David's life is in danger. Jonathan, David's best friend's life, is also in danger. And even David's parents' lives are in danger. Basically, anyone who helps David is in trouble. I wonder if you can imagine having such conflict between you and another person. As many of you guys know, you know, I kind of spent, spent a good amount of time with some rough people, and regularly these people would have beef with other people such that, you know, in some ways these guys were after each other's lives. And you know how conflict resolution goes amongst whether the regular person or even the rough person. On one side of the spectrum of solving conflict, let's take the more supposedly gentle person. You know, they might want to resolve the conflict by removing themselves, right? Their own selves entirely from the situation. So think of the person who runs away. Ultimately, think of suicide, right? There, the conflict is gone. On the other side of the spectrum, you have the the folks that uh, I spend a good amount of time with. The solution is to remove the other person from the situation. You can think of those who cut down with words. You can think of even murder. Those the, the those two opposites are you know they are what the world says is how you go about solving conflict. When it comes to David, David's not going to run away from the situation. I mean, he's a king. He's a leader of God's people. David errs, though, in the other direction, as he's a sinner, right? David is tempted towards violence. That's what happens in chapter 24, if you guys recall there. It just so happened there that David had the opportunity to kill Saul, right? Problem solved for some people. What happened there is that David and his men were hiding from Saul in this massive cave when all according to God's sovereign purpose, he brings Saul right to him. Saul actually goes into the cave to relieve himself that has used the bathroom. And David and his men are sitting there thinking, now is the time. He is completely exposed, literally, for David to chop him down. And David is legitimately tested. He is legitimately tempted. He could have ended Saul's life immediately, right? You think of David's problems and even the nation's problems in some ways would be gone. With Saul out of the way, he could give himself a clear path to the throne. Being legitimately tempted, what does he end up doing? By God's grace, he ends up not killing him. But he does, though, in temptation, cut off a portion of Saul's robe, which was seen in those cultures to be a rebellious act, symbolizing a claim to the throne. But even in that, he is wrong, right? So he repents by God's grace. He knew the throne should not be taken by violence, and so he's convicted of his sin. By God's grace, he, he does not murder. Nevertheless, in his heart's desires, right, you see them, they actually take form. They give birth to sin. He cuts off a bit of his robe. So he's, he's, he's tempted towards that kind of violence, right, that kind of uh, conflict resolution, according to the world's eyes. But it doesn't stop there. His anger actually spills out upon others, and you guys know what this is like. If you can't do anything to the person maybe who is, who is causing you the threat, you know, you can't exactly spill out all your anger towards them, so naturally, who does your anger fall on? It falls on other people, right? That's actually what happens in chapter 25. There, David, uh, he, he, he's, he, him and his men are sort of wandering around, and he actually decides to go ahead and take care of this, this person's sheep shearers, right? He's guarding them by night, by day, just protecting them, because that's what, that's what the king does, right? 
or the man who is soon to be king, a man who's, who is very much has a heart after God's own heart. He decides to take care of this man, Nabal's people. But what does Nabal do? Nabal does evil to David's good. That's when David really loses it, right? Chapter 24, you see his heart is tempted, and he gives in a little, a little. But then chapter 25, David just loses it. This guy Nabal, he does genuine evil to to David, but David's like, strap on your sword, so we're going to go and kill him. So he and his men are like heading towards the city to go and wipe out all of Nabal and his family. He wants to spill Nabal's blood and return evil for evil. But by God's grace, Abigail, Nabal's wife, talks David down, the giant killer. She speaks godly wisdom. She has great tact. She has godliness to match David's as well, even though David is a sinner, keeping him from guilt and murder, right? That's what Abigail does. And then being a godsend to David, she brings him the right words at the right time, words of grace, words of rebuke as well, that is fitting for the situation. And she reminds him that his life as God's chosen one to lead God's people is in the care of God. That he need not give into such violence, but that he can trust in God. Through her own godliness, through godly wisdom, Abigail restrains David. David goes from taking matters into his own hand to trusting in the arm of God and his power to fulfill his plans. It's a moving picture. You turn over there to verse 25. Go ahead and turn over there. David, he just gives thanks for the things that Abigail had said. This is really important here because it informs how we read chapter 26. Uh, you look there. Actually, let's go ahead and look at Abigail's word. You look there in verse 28, right? She's pleading with him. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord, right? She's ministering truth to him. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord, that is David, a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. So she ministers these wonderful words of grace and even rebuke and truth to David. And look what he says there in verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me, that is, restrained me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left one to Nabal so much as one male. So you see those what he has learned there, he chooses righteousness right there in the moment. Can you imagine, right? On the dirt path, on the way to kill Nabal and all his family, there is Abigail crouched down, pleading with David the king, and David relents. He chooses righteousness, the righteousness of God. And how does it work out? Look over there. Nabal ends up dying, 2537. Go ahead and look there. 2537, in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, because he's getting drunk over this party, his wife told him everything that happened, and his heart died within him. 
and he became as a stone. Who knows what happened? Heart attack, stroke. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. You see who his death is attributed to? God removed Nabal from the picture. David didn't have to. David knew that it was God who was the one who had avenged the evil done to him. And so you see there that after all of the ups and all the downs being tempted and giving a little bit and giving it a lot, and then basically being rebuked and ministered to by Abigail, David learns. He learns. And instead of taking matters into his own hands, he trusts the hand of God. And in our chapter today, David really does seem to have learned he was the one needing to be restrained in chapter 25, right, by Abigail. But in our passage, he is the one who does the restraining. He's the one who is doing the restraining. Look at chapter 26, and we're going to dive into this account here. Chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. You see there, you can go ahead and scan those verses, right? Once again, like before, we've seen this before, the situation, the Ziphites know exactly where David is hiding, right? David's on the run from Saul. So they go and tell Saul. Verse 2, what does Saul do? He hunts David. He takes his special forces, so to speak. He heads into the wilderness, and there he encamps, and he prepares to smash David. But David does something interesting. He actually stays in the wilderness. Look what happens in verses 4 and 5. David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. That's action. Under the cover of night, he sneaks in, goes right to the middle of the camp, and then you see there, right? I mean, we're not entirely sure why exactly he did this, but I think it's because Just as he knew what happened last time, remember when he cuts off Saul's robe and then he goes before Saul, Saul actually, for a little moment, backs off. He supposedly repents a little bit, and I think that's exactly what David knows will happen again. Here, David's going to go into the camp, he's going to take something, and he's going to challenge Saul, and Saul actually, all by God's grace, actually relents. He backs off a little bit, so just keep that in your mind in terms of as we read why they're doing what they're doing. Look there at verse 7, or sorry, verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zuriah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. It's incredible. It's an incredible, incredibly moving story here. David sneaks right into the middle of Saul's encampment. And of course, there is Saul sleeping with what? Right next to his head. His spear. I, I, I assume David had certain feelings towards that particular spear, right? It is that spear that almost took his head off twice. It is that spear that almost took Jonathan's life. And I assume it was that spear that killed many others that helped David. And in seeing the spear, what does his soldier say, right? His soldier says what I think we all would be thinking of there in verse 8. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. He's like so much of the stud 
Jocko Willink military commander, that he says, look, I could just do one, one slice of the spear, one stab of the spear, he's gone. I won't even need to slice him twice or spear him twice. Just like in chapter 24, his men want to kill Saul. But, you know, David has learned. Whereas before he was tempted, right? And then he cut off Saul's robe. And then the next chapter, he actually gives in, straps on his own sword, and he's headed to go kill Nabal. Here, what does David do? What does he do there? He actually refuses. Verse 9, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. Don't destroy him. There's no sense of hesitation. There's no sense of, yeah, maybe this is a good idea. He doesn't go galloping down the road with his men and his horses to kill. He just says, don't do it. Even though I'm sure Abishai clearly was thinking that it would be a good idea. There's absolutely no notion. Why is that? What keeps him from killing Saul? That's right there in the passage. Two reasons right there in the passage. First, because Saul was, is the Lord's anointed. Right? Saul was, in fact, still king. The kingdom had not yet been torn from him, although God said it would be at a certain time. Saul was still legitimately king. He says there, if you look there, in verse 9, do not destroy him. Why? For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David was to be the next king, but Saul was still king. In short, if you're looking for a reason for why he doesn't kill him, here's a summary reason. It's God's will. It is God's will. He trusts in God's will. He's not going to mess with it. The second reason why David and his men should not kill him, because if God had promised David was going to be king, then God would clearly clear the way for David to be king. So if you're looking for a summary reason there, it's God brings to fruition his own plan. God brings to fruition his own plan. You see there, and David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Isn't this interesting, right? I mean, you remember in chapter 25, he just got done being restrained by Abigail. God is working in his heart in such a way to actually think, gosh, this is a really stupid idea. I shouldn't do that. Abigail, you are a godsend, keeping me from guilt. And then Nabal dies. What happens here? Not only does Nabal die, but he knows that God struck Nabal dead. Here he says, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed? Verse 10, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. The Lord will do exactly what he did to Nabal. He goes on, or his day will come to an end his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish who knows what's going to happen what is for certain is that one day at a certain point in time he's gonna die he's a wicked man and he knows that the lord is going to take care of him god brings to fruition his plan god will do what he promised in effect he is saying there if you take those two reasons why am i not going to kill him god forbid i sinfully make happen what God has promised. God forbid I sinfully make happen what God has promised. You see there, he is a changed man. He needed to be restrained in the previous chapter, and here he does the restraining, all because he trusts in the Lord, what God's going to do. In the last episode of his life, as he was on the run from Saul, his faith was stretched, right, to the limit. 
And then we see that it was strengthened by Abigail's massive doses of truth and wisdom such that David here is the one ministering the truth to others. Isn't that encouraging? You see Abigail speaking those truths in a previous episode of his life, but here he's in the position to speak those very truths to somebody else. I thank God we have this account here. David here is in the position to restrain others and without hesitation. He gains wisdom and godliness through the fire, right? As God teaches him through the fire, tempted, cutting off Saul's robe, and then tempted, he's on the road to kill Nabal. But God teaches him here. In those trials, he embraces the truths that Abigail told him, right? Because the Lord is with him. His life is bound up in the bundle of the living. He knew God's track record and had seen God work one more time, striking down Nabal and avenging the wickedness done to David. So he therefore stands in the position to resist sin and he can trust so much so that he walks amongst his enemies and wants their best. He can actually walk amongst his enemies and want their best. Can you just imagine all the different ways that you, Christian, struggle with sin? And you give in even maybe a little bit or maybe even a lot. It's in those moments, actually, that God desires that you be refined by his truth. Can you imagine how discouraging it would be on all of the which he's tempted to sin? How he actually gives birth, his violence gives birth to sin. He is on the road to kill somebody. I think I would be certainly convicted of that sin. Certainly shocked by what can come out of the heart. Praise God for his truth, man. It's in that fire that God intends we learn, that our faith be stretched and that our faith be strengthened. This is the path of the Christian. Certainly the circumstances are different, right? We don't have the promise to be earthly kings and queens over God's people. But regardless, God is in the business of refining your faith. And he teaches us to trust in him so that we can, number one, resist sin. Number two, choose Christ and Christ's likeness. And number three, help others to do the same. And you know what we show others? We show others that Christ, as we do those things, number one, resist sin. Number two, choose Christ's likeness. And then number three, teach other people to do the same. We show others that Christ and his ways are far better than the solutions that we can come up with in our own sin. We show them that God has our trust. What does David show Abishai right in that moment? Abishai interprets providence in a certain way. God has delivered him. Let's kill him. David says, no way. You are wrong. David shows Abishai God's ways are best. He is worthy of our trust. How How encouraging is it to know that as God sanctifies us, he uses us to teach others the same truths that you are learning. He uses us to teach others that Christ's people are satisfied in Jesus Christ. We teach this to non-Christians. When someone has sinned against you and you let love cover over a multitude of sins, you choose, when that moment, when somebody sins against you, you choose not to get angry, but to respond in patience. You choose even to let love Guide how you interact with that one who is angry with you. You know what you show other people? 
You know what you show non-Christians? You show that Christ's ways are best. And he has my trust. You could respond in violence, right? You could respond with verbal whippings and lashings to get even. You could take matters into your own hands. You could choose the way of sin. But what does that show? It shows, number one, I don't care what the Lord's will is. And then you show them, number two, he is not finally going to protect me, so I better protect myself. That's what gives birth to sin. I don't care what God says. I'm going to do it my own way. I am my own protector. You could go about things the way that the world does, violence and anger, but instead you, Christian, have that opportunity to choose the way of Christ and his kingdom. This can be applied to so many of our temptations, whether it be about violence and anger, if you wrestle with that. could be with, let's say, responding in vengeance when someone gossips about you in the workplace. Let's say somebody does that, and they do that in order to get ahead, right? And our temptation might be, we need to do the same thing to get ahead. We need to do the same thing to keep our jobs. We got to vindicate ourselves. But when you, Christian, choose not to gossip, to not get even, but to be honest, full of integrity and full of love. You have the opportunity to show your coworkers that you don't work for the world, but you work for Christ, and he is of greatest value. His kingdom is the best. Think about those who struggle with lust and temptation. You could choose the path of sin of, let's say, immediate satisfaction according to the world's ways, the earthly kingdom's ways, or you could choose, choose Christ and his ways. You say to others, hey, what Christ desires for my body and other people's bodies, that is best. And even where I might not know all the whys and the ins and outs of my own temptation, he can be trusted because he is good. If you're visiting and you know yourself not to be a Christian or maybe you are exploring the Christian faith, I hope you see that when the Christian chooses Christ and his righteous ways, it is not just about what Christians are to do and what Christians are not to do. Undergirding what we do or the ethic, the ethics, undergirding all of that is the why, of course, right? And we see that here in David. Why does he do what he do? does? Well, number one, what God has ordained is best. It's the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to touch him. Second, he will take care of me. He is my refuge at the end of the day but the same thing is for christians the same thing is for christians the substance for why we do what we do is the exact same we are convinced that god at the end of the day is better than sin we certainly don't do this perfectly we still struggle but we are convinced by the spirit of god that god is better than sin and we can trust him again if you are visiting you know that you are in a room full of people who were known, were known for our worship of other things. All of us. We were known for the worship of other things, but now we worship God. We are people known for being, sex, for previously being known for being sexually immoral, but now who choose freely to, and willingly to submit all of our sexuality and, and everything like that to Jesus Christ. You are in a room full of people who were formerly known to be cheats of this world. Scam artists of this world in one way or another. But now, we work as unto the Lord. We were known to be people who were captivated by greed. 
but who now strive to see everything that we have is of the Lord because he is our creator. Friends, we could just go on and on and on about all the different things that we are known for because we were of the world, but now we are saved in Jesus Christ. We are fundamentally changed. And we say that with David. What God has ordained is best as we know that he will take care of us. You know what, though, speaking to the Christian, we have seen God take care of us in far greater ways than David saw God take care of him. Isn't that interesting? You think about, we think about David here, his courage and his strength. Well, where does that come from? It's because he knows God's will and he trusts in God, right? He sees God's track record. God just took out Nabal. We as Christians stand on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we have so much greater evidence to know of God's steadfast love to us. We have so much greater reason to be confident in God. David knew God's promises. He saw God fulfill his promises, you know, to a good degree. But he still waited for their climax. We, though, knowing about Christ and the cross, we know, personally know the climax. We read of the climax in Jesus Christ and his word. We know and experience this climax for ourselves, that, yes, God is, in fact, faithful. God's will is best. And he has, in fact, taken care of us. God was the one who promised to save man from all of their sin. God was the one who promised pardon for their sin. God was the one who said, I will remove my judgment from all who trust in me. He didn't have to do any of that, but in fact, he did. In faithfully fulfilling his promises to send Jesus Christ to be our righteousness, to be our Lord, to be our Savior, and then to cover us in his righteousness, to count us righteous right before God as he does this through his life and his death on the cross. We see his faithfulness as God has given us new hearts and new desires. He's taken out stony hearts, given us hearts of flesh, and he has made all things new, starting with our hearts. Praise God, we can look back to the cross and see such great steadfast love to people who don't deserve anything but his judgment. As he sends his eternal son to take on flesh, as he walks amongst us, entering into our situation, he lives the righteous life that was demanded of us. He dies the death that was upon us, that was our sentence, but instead being our wrath-bearing substitute, he bears that upon himself, bearing the judgment that we deserved. Three days later, he gets up from the dead, declaring that no more is death demanded of us but that all those who repent of their sins and believe on him will be saved. Friends, that's all, all of that is God's steadfast love. And even right now, he's preserving us so that we would inherit all of the full blessings that come in Jesus Christ. No wonder God is our refuge. And he can, in fact, be trusted. Again, if you're visiting with us and you want to learn more about this, come talk to us. We'd love to talk to you about, about why we choose God, why we think God's going God's to take care of us. I'd love to talk to you about what God has rescued me from and why I want to submit everything to Jesus Christ, even when it's hard, even when I don't understand sometimes. And I'm sure the Christians here would love to do the same. If you hear this and you see, wow, like this is awesome, this steadfast love, friends, let me encourage you to repent of your sins and be saved. You too can know this steadfast love for yourself as you come face to face with the fact that God's will is good. 
and he can be trusted. No wonder God is our refuge. When we are tempted to interact with our enemies, cut down with swords or more realistically with our words, when we are lonely, tempted to sexual immorality, when we are maybe insecure in this world, tempted to build our earthly lives on riches and on and on and on, we submit all of those things to Jesus Christ and we can trust in His will as He is our strength. Here stands David refusing sin but choosing righteousness. God was working on him big time, chapters, all the chapters really, as he's interacting with Saul who wants to kill him. God is refining and strengthening his faith in God himself. And what's a byproduct of all of this? This stretching and strengthening is actually confidence. We see this in point number two, confidence. The end product of this refined faith is confidence in the Lord that he will indeed reward the righteous. Confidence in the Lord that he will reward the righteous. Thinking about the narrative and the story, you see they're, uh, they're tempted, or at least Abishai is tempted to kill him. They think it's a good idea. Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should strike out, stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but now take the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So they take off. And uh, if you look there at verses 13 to 16, what happens here is that David and Abishai grab the spear, the water jug. They go up on the side of the hill where they can clearly be heard, and they wake them up. They wake up Saul and all of his special forces, and he, ha- he heralds this sort of taunt in some ways to Abner, the commander of all of Saul's army. Now, of course, he's speaking to Saul as well. He wakes them up. And then he's going to confront Saul and hopefully get Saul to relent just for a moment. You know that this uh, whole strategy here, it only works because David trusts God and chooses righteousness. I mean, just imagine for a moment, if David did try to take the throne by violence, he could not. There's no way that he could have pled innocence. And his innocence is a major thing that makes this account so powerful. You look there at 18 to 20. Uh, Let's just go ahead and read from 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son, David? Interesting language there. You already see that Saul's sort of like pacified. My son, David. And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains." You see, his godliness is actually reflected there in those comments in how he's pleading to Saul. First, it's clear he is godly because he is an innocent man. He is an innocent man. Though he's clearly open to the possibility that he did sin. And he says, look, if I did sin, if God has rightly stirred you up to come after me, let me offer a sacrifice. Let me obey the law of God. And then, and then I can make atonement. Second thing, second reason why he's godly or how we see he's godly is that he stands against unrighteous men. If it is these men, these unrighteous men, who have stirred you up to come after me, let them be accursed. Third thing, 
David, we see David's godliness in that he wants to be with the Lord's people in the Lord's promised land, worshiping the Lord himself. They have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods, as in, you get out of here, like, go, go to the pagan lands. you got no share with the Lord and the Lord's people. And he says there, don't let me die away from the Lord. We see there again that he wants to be with the Lord and the Lord's people worshiping God. And what effect does David's godliness have? Just like last time, it actually works to soften Saul to a certain degree. Saul recognizes there in verse 21. Go ahead and read that. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son, David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. He says there, he confesses, it's very, it's very clear. The effect of this effect here of David's godliness, it, it reminds us of Titus chapter 2, where Paul, the apostle, encourages Titus in the New Testament, he encourages him towards holy living and the church towards holy living that accords with Jesus Christ. And I want you to go over there. So turn in the New Testament to Titus. Uh, if you're sitting next to somebody who might be new to the Bible, just go ahead and help them get there. And here you see that godly living actually has an effect as God wills and as God determines on others. You see there in Titus chapter 2, 7, he tells Titus, right, as a young man, Paul says, show yourself in all respects to, a, to be a model of good works. He says, show yourself in all respects to live in a godly life, be godly in your teaching, show integrity dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned the reason why so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us that's fascinating and then he goes on in verse in verse uh, 2 9 paul tells titus to teach bond servants he says bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything they are to be well pleasing not argumentative not pilfering right let's live a godly life but showing all good faith so that the reason is in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's really instructive. In David, we have an Old Testament example of what it looks like to do just this. Saul is ashamed and has nothing bad to say about David, right? At all. Because though, but because through his godliness, he has adorned the doctrine of God, his Savior. Christian, you realize that when you choose Christ and Christ-likeness, that's what happens? Scripture gives us reason to think that some will even turn to your very Christ that you trust in. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, just turn right, a handful of books. In similar fashion, Peter says the same thing to the churches that he's writing to in modern-day Turkey. He says there, he says, live a godly life that accords with Jesus. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That, that just means basically non-Christians. He's actually writing to people who were not ethnic Jews, that they, that they were actually Gentiles. But he's just saying, look, keep your conduct among the world, non-Christians, honorable so that the reason is when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. That is the day of Christ's return. Isn't that interesting? That's what happens, Christian, when you choose Christ and Christ's likeness in the face of those who oppose you. For David, it works to soften Saul for a moment. Thank God. Of course, he knows that Saul cannot finally be trusted, so he still uses wisdom, right? I mean, Saul has a horrible track record. He doesn't tell Saul himself to come get the spear. He just says, send one of your men there in verse 22. We know, too, that Saul himself says, return, my son. But then in verse 25, the last section there, go ahead and look there at 1 Samuel. You can turn back. They actually part ways. Saul goes one direction, and David chooses to go in another direction. He says, more or less, there's, there's reconciliation cannot be had here. Even though he wants him to be reconciled to God, he still acts in wisdom. But David's main practical lesson in the entire chapter, and in fact all of chapters 21 to 26, is right there in verses 23 to 24. After everything that he has been through, the suffering, the turmoil, the temptation and sin, after being ministered to by Abigail, here he is before Saul, refined in the faith and confident in the Lord. Look there at 23, or look at 22, sorry. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. By the way, when he says may, he's not saying maybe it will happen and maybe it won't. He's saying it will happen. What a powerful speech. Just a couple of lines, but so incredibly powerful. What he does here to Saul, what he says to Saul, you realize is all a result of embracing the truths that Abigail reminded him of. Go ahead, look there again, 25. 28, 25, 28. She says there, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you shall live. Basically says if evil comes after you, evil men come after you, you are in the care of the Lord. Your life is found, bound up in the bundle of the living. Therefore, you look at 23 and 24, David says, I act in God's righteousness. Why is that? Why will I not strike out my hand and kill the Lord's anointing? Why is that? Because I can trust the Lord. Because the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. And, the, and my life is precious in the sight of the Lord. You see his confidence there? Where does he get this confidence? Verse 24, because the Lord will deliver me. He knows that God's people are precious in his sight. Friends, you see that David's confidence is to be our confidence. His reasons for confidence are to be our reasons for confidence. Christian, if you're suffering right, right now, whether it be persecution for the faith, which is basically what we see here, or just suffering in general, which I know a lot of you are going through, and you recognize that you too are precious in the sight of the Lord. God who sees everything, and knows everything. You are precious in his sight, the sight of Christ, the great shepherd. So friends, if you are facing opposition for your faith, 
from your family or from your coworkers. Christ, you know, understands these things, whether it be rejection and mockery, the violence and hostility. Christians, just as God delivered Christ once and for all from all of His tribulations here on earth, so Christ will do the same for you at His return at that great day. And even then, we can taste the reward right now, right? God rewards the righteous. God rewards those who have faith in Jesus, who have repented of their sins and believed on Him. We can taste the reward even right now. Christ's peace that He promises. Christ's joy that He puts into our hearts. His abiding presence through the Spirit. It's certainly not an easy life all the time. David clearly did not live an easy life, nor did Jesus, nor did his disciples, nor did the early church, nor did lots, tons, if not millions of Christians living around the world right now. They don't live an easy life. But I can say that as we grow in Christ, we come to know spiritually how restful the Christian life is, how peaceful the Christian life is, because we know God is looking after us. This peace and rest in God is reflected in the Psalms that David wrote concerning all of these ups and downs and the trials and the refinement, the stretching, the strengthening. He writes these Psalms in such a personal way. Did you know that it was these events that occasioned the writing of a handful of Psalms? And in them, we see a little of David's mind about the sufferings, his own sufferings and his trust in the Lord. So, for example, turn over to Psalm 54. Again, help your neighbor get there. Psalm 54. If you don't know who you're sitting next to, just be awkward and say, here you go, here's Psalm 54. Now, now, okay, we got Psalm 54, we got Psalm 56, Psalm 57, Psalm 59. If you want to know how to read your Bible and fit things together, all of those Psalms are written about this general period in Psalm's life. You look there at the uh, the, the title, basically, in Psalm 54. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskil, which is a musical term of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? That happened twice. This could be the, the chapter 26. And then you look at uh, Psalm 56, right? To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths. We don't know what tune that was. A victim of David. Look here. When the Philistines seized him in Gath. That, generally speaking, is, is what happened there between chapters 21 and 26. You look there in Psalm 57. It says there, To the choir master, according to, do not destroy a miktum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. And then in 59, to the choir master, according to, the tune of, do not destroy a miktum of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. All of these were written about David's sufferings. And in all of the trials and tribulations, why is it that he thinks God can be trusted? Turn back to Psalm 54. Well, it's because God is a God who judges. God is a God who judges. Look there at 54.4. Behold, God is my helper, the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Why is it that you do not need to return evil for evil, but instead you should return evil, or sorry, return good for evil? Why is that? Because God is judge. 
You can entrust yourself to Him and follow the path of Christ. You can trust that God Himself will vindicate all of His people in 54.1. Oh God, save me by Your name and vindicate me by Your might. Why else can God be trusted in the midst of opposition? Because God is a God who saves. You look there in 54.1, once again, right? He's talking about save me. You can think too about... uh, Take 56, because God is a God who is gracious. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. You can think about 57. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful for me, to me, for in my soul, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Why else is God to be trusted? Because God has, in fact, good purposes for him. 57.2, 57.2, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He knows he has the promise that he will be king, so he can trust in God's purpose. We don't have that kind of purpose. And we know just like David, we will all see death one way or another. But we too have a purpose that we will be raised up in Jesus Christ one day where the kingdom will be consummated in Christ's, in Christ's return. Not only that, though, right? This God who judges, who saves, who is gracious, merciful, who is our Savior, who has a good purpose, He's not far off. He's a God who is with us. He's a God who, what, in 56a, go ahead and look there in these incredibly uh, personal terms here. 56a, you look there, tender terms. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? It's incredible here. And of course, the reason why, the reason why he goes to God in, in cries you know, and pleads with God is because he knows that God is such a tender-hearted God who pays attention, who sees his people in his sight as precious. And so given God is who he says he is, what then is, able, is David able to do? He's able to trust Look there in 56, 3 and 4. He says there, these very famous famous verses, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Not only that, though, not only is he able to trust, but he's able to offer up his life as worship to God every step of the way, even in exile. 56, verse 13 For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Interesting, he says that in the past tense, that he has delivered my soul from death, even though his trials are not over yet at this time in chapter 56. Not only that, though, David, we see, is faithful even as he walks among his enemies. 57.6, look there. He says there, right, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bound, bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. It's incredible. Even though they 
may want other things for you, Christian, God wants wonderful things for you. They do this, but God shows us steadfast love. Friends, you see that that is faithfulness fueled by confidence in who God is. God's faithfulness and steadfast love, it motivates David's faithfulness and is to motivate our own. Christian, God is working to strengthen our faith in him and his steadfast love or in his steadfast love such that we would live in confidence in who he is and walk in the sight and in the light of the Lord. Again, you know where the steadfast love of the Lord is most clearly displayed? It is in the giving of Jesus Christ for you, Christian, who walked among his enemies, even you who were hostile to God at one time, in order that you would be restored to God, adopted as sons and daughters, forgiven of your sins, and that you would become heirs of God's kingdom. And now that your eternal life in Jesus Christ has been granted to you and secured in the Lord, so therefore we can be faithful and have confidence to refuse sin, to choose righteousness and follow the path of Christ, and to teach others who do, or to do the same, even in the face of those who oppose us, as we walk amongst them, wanting what is best for them, giving our very lives for them, so that they would know Christ and be restored to Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are our faithful God who can be trusted. You do not change like shifting shadows or even the course of the planets who change every moment of their existence. We thank you that you are not like us. We might wake up one moment moody and then in the next moment be happy. You, God, are forever loving, forever gracious, forever merciful, steadfast in your love, in your justice, in your righteousness and holiness. And in your grace, you have so chosen to give your son to the death for sinners who deserve nothing but judgment. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be refined, even though we do this, you do this through fire. We pray, God, that we would never be ultimately hopeless because we always have hope in Christ and what he is doing. God, we thank you that even in your faithfulness, you are fulfilling your promise to make us more like your son. Conform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would so delight in refusing sin, in choosing the way of Christ, and in teaching others to do the same. In your name we pray these things. Amen.